You're listening to the official Dietitian Connection podcast. This podcast gives you access to the most successful and influential experts in the dietetic profession. This podcast will inspire you, it will challenge you, and it will empower you to become a nutrition leader and realize your dreams. Hello to all of our listeners and welcome to this week's episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm your host, Kate Agnew, and this week we've got Glenn Cardwell joining us. So Glenn is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian based in Perth, Australia. And you may have already heard one of Glenn's episodes on this podcast, or perhaps you've seen him present. He's an award-winning professional speaker and author of multiple books. In the past, he's held positions in clinical dietetics, public health nutrition, and also as a lecturer. And he's on the show today to share his journey, his awesome sense of humor, and of course, give us some pearls of wisdom. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, Glenn. Really awesome to be chatting to you today. Thanks, Kate. Thank you very much. I I quite like to start with this question before we get into the specifics. So if someone was to ask you, who is Glenn Cardwell, what would you say? (laughs) Well, a good question. Okay, well done. Um, I'd say, look, I've got no idea. I I just reside in this body. I actually don't know how it works or how his brain works. But, I mean, I can tell you, I can tell you this, that uh, I'm very – I'm very private. I'm very introverted. Um, uh, and what's also interesting is, and I'd much prefer to be writing and, and, and doing photography than necessarily uh, dietitianing. But uh, there's an assumption that every dietitian has a, a keen interest in food. I'm actually not a foodie. I'm not in any way a foodie. I mean, if somebody said, you know, do you want to eat at the at the fat duck tonight, or do you want just this nice homemade marmalade on toast? I'd probably think it was a 50-50 split. Maybe just go for the uh, the toast and marmalade. Anyway, that's me. <laughs> so then on that note, what do you most love about being a dietitian, or what is it that actually drives you to be a dietitian, a great dietitian at that? Well, I mean, it wasn't necessarily part of the plan, and there's been plenty of moments when I thought, well, let's just get out of here and do something completely different. But uh, the the beauty of, of this profession is, is things take you in different directions. So I actually don't look in the mirror and see a dietitian. I look in the mirror and see um, an aging educator or teacher. I mean, that's probably what it's more about. It's, it's about trying to put uh, science and discovery and knowledge into a uh, into a, a method or a, an idea or a, uh, or a paragraph that actually makes sense to the public. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like a um, a translator of data into what I hope to be useful public information. An aging educator, that's obviously metaphorical. Well, I guess, yeah, because we're always learning, aren't we? We're yeah. also, yeah, I guess, an aging student and educator. So can you take me through the highlights of your career so far, whether it be 
the good bits, the bad bits, or even certain milestones that you've achieved so far? Well, there's, there's always a few things that, that stick in your brain as you go along. I mean, there's there's plenty of moments, and I guess there's a few moments as I've gone through my career. I mean, I start off with with working with adults, and then I move to the kids' hospital in Sydney. And I got the job working with kids with burns, which is, you know, I guess psychologically beyond a lot of people because it's quite distressing to see a kid with burns, especially if it's burns to their face and they're actually unrecognisable compared to the photographs that uh, you know, are next to their bedside. Um, but we did that, and but the kids would often struggle to eat. We would come up with ideas of smoothies and um, and milkshakes for them. You know, we boosted them up so they got lots and lots of nutrients in them. But uh, the kids would get just nauseous and would fade away. And uh, I mean, I talked to the to the surgeons and said, "Look, how about can we put in a gastrostomy tube for these kids and and feed them that way?" In other words, we bypass the psychology, we bypass the flavour and the and the aromas, etc., that come through. And so what happened was we did that with a, a couple of kids. The, the surgeons were very pleased with progress and, and you know, the skin grafts were, were quicker. We didn't actually do a study on it or, or anything. And um, then it became almost standard. If a kid had uh, you know, much more than 30 40% burns, we would uh, put in a gastrostomy tube and start feeding them that way from the outset as soon as they were able to you know, come out of ICU. And so there's – I mean, that was – one way of getting the kids back on track much uh, quicker. I mean, on a on a different note, um, I worked with a lady called Robin Bromley um, on setting up the West Australian School Canteen Association um, here in Perth. Uh, Robin had the enthusiasm and the ideas, but she just couldn't uh, get it started. She couldn't. You know, there's nobody who would help her. Mm. I had the the access to the infrastructure and to money. And so working in tandem, we uh, got that started and uh, and that's gone on. That's been wonderful. That's been a great uh, boost here in in uh, uh, Western Australia because, we, you know, there's now mechanisms by which um, uh, school canteens can assess themselves against criteria that uh, the Western Australian School Canteen Association has started. Around about the same time, also work with the – uh, some great dietitians to set up Sports Dietitians Australia. I mean, it came from ideas. I think probably even Karen Ingeman kicked it off. Um, Louise Burke, Deb Kerr from uh, WA, mm. and then we brought in, you know, Lorna Garnet, uh, Garden, Helen O'Connor, um, Holly was there, Holly Frail, uh, Liz Broad, and myself. So there's like a there's a core of eight people who worked well really for two to three years to actually establish Sports Dietitians Australia. We were the first professional sports nutrition body in the world oh, I might, wow. um, beat the Americans by a long shot um, <laughs> and, uh, and and it's good to see that's that's endured as well and, and now become a, a very uh, powerful and professional organization in its own right mm-hmm. I mean I also did a, a book called Gold Medal Nutrition, which is a sports nutrition book, um, and that started off as a little a little side project for me and ended up being a handout to um, uh, to um, um, yeah, well, right, we were to be fitness leaders or aerobics teachers and that type of stuff. Um, and it grew from there and, and actually 
I won't give you the whole story, but actually got picked up by the US and ended up being published in the US and therefore internationally. And uh, that was a little bit of a, a bonus. It even it, there's even a Russian version out there. Can you believe? So, so I'm, I'm big in big in Moscow. Yeah, very good. <laughs> um, so, Glenn, can you take me through a day in the life of Glenn Cardwell? Well, I guess there's no. I guess like many people, there's no set day. I mean. In truth, right now, I mean, four or five mornings a week, I'm getting up a silly hour. I mean, this morning I got up at 4.25, the alarm goes, jump into my cycling kit, cycle to to bike training or cycling training, do training, then cycle back home again, have a coffee. Um, I uh, read Spanish while I'm having breakfast. I don't read the paper. Um, Why Spanish? Well, because um, that's that's what I'm trying to get better at. That's okay. a, yeah, it's 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 a new world. I'm jump into the uh, the Spanish or the the Latin American. Just a side world. project. Well, what's a side project? It's it's a part a part of life. I mean, we we often differentiate between life and uh, and work. Uh, for me, there's there's a blur. I don't know. Sometimes I actually can't pick whether I'm. Um, as I say to people, you know, every day is a holiday, every day is a work day, because you know, there's an assumption that Monday to Friday you work and the weekends you have off. And uh, often um, I'm working all through the weekends if by somebody else's definition, but not necessarily by mine. Uh, and it may involve, a lot of it will involve writing, a lot of it will involve planning, uh, negotiating, um you know, I'm a mentee, which is which I, I'm a mentee, a mentor to mentees, and some of the uh, are um, uh, what's the right word? Um, not through the DA APD program. Some are through there, and, and some are kind of unofficial mentees um, here in Perth. So I've got three of those that I try and my best to help out. So all of yeah. those, uh, I mean, is that work? I mean, I actually quite enjoy doing that. So I don't see it as as yeah. Work. Thanks for that, Glenn. Um, so, and I know you also do present, often do presentations and speaking, particularly at schools. Is that right? Well, I've done that. I mean, I started off doing that, and again, it, it, it was the the reluctance at the very beginning because as you start off as a new graduate, you get given the the jobs and the work that nobody else wants to do. So I'm a new graduate starting off at Wollongong Hospital and there's a TAFE course on nutrition and you just get dumped into doing it. You do it and at the end of it you realise it was appalling. You know, you started off with 20 people and end up with about three after eight weeks of of doing this and people are just walking out because it's just not interesting, it's, it's not what they wanted. And then you go that you don't enjoy particularly doing that. So you think, oh, how can I improve upon that? What can make it better? And then you just go from there and trying to improve it. I mean, you also then have an aspect or, a, or a, a, an idea of what kind of things they're thinking and what kind of things they want. I mean, in this very first TAFE course, uh, I mean, a lady um, told me that she was drinking, I can't remember, it was something like six to eight glasses, maybe more of um, um, homemade um, carrot juice each day. And she showed me, she said, and look at my skin, my skin's going orange. And she said, you know what, that's all the toxins coming out mm. of my skin. And I, my brain just had never 
um, had no concept of what that actually human beings did this kind of had this kind of activity or behavior and then of course she subsequently realized that uh, what she's got is hyper beta keratinemia and that's the reason she's gone orange and it wouldn't it be nice if you know in that very first TAFE course, I could actually say that this is what's happening to you. It's not toxins at all. Now, this is beta carotene giving you that, that nice orange glow if that's what you're looking for. Um, so, all these things where you realize that um, after a while, there's a common theme or a common baseline of questions that you get, and you become very good at answering those. Um, you know, you can- so, is that what drove you to become an educator as such? Well, that you, that you then. Well, yes, from a baseline of being absolutely total crap, um, you go, I actually don't want to be known as the crappiest lecturer on the planet, and that's what I was. Um, I don't think so. Yes, indeed. And then you you just say, look, I'm determined to get better at doing this, and you end up doing courses, reading books, um, going to see other people, getting uh, tips and ideas from – a whole group of people, and that's and that's and then you realise that that's what you want to do is you actually want to be that translator. You want to be the person who can take those um, crazy TV shows, take those newspaper stories, magazine stories, take those things that people then subsequently read on the internet and say, well, "No, this is actually what mm. is closer to the truth," and and make it practical and useful for them so they can actually put a handle on it and walk out the door with that bit of um, information which you hope will then be used at home. So let's put the carrots aside and talk about talk about chocolate and wine which you deem are essential food groups. Tell me a little bit more about this. Well, it's it's one if you if you I mean when I was how should we say not necessarily advertising myself but promoting yourself when people say, oh, look, can you send me some stuff about what you do, uh, what presentations do you give, etc.? I would often put in there that, uh, you know, and, and Glenn Carter believes that uh, chocolate and red wine are essential food groups, and people will latch onto that, and that, that actually became a common part of your introduction because that's what they chose to use to, to introduce you. Um, and what I was trying to portray is that here's somebody who actually probably eats – um, similar foods to you, but maybe not in the same frequency and the same amount as you do. Um, and trying to point out that you know you're getting somebody who's a human being rather than an automaton that is going around telling you to eat heads of lettuce and soybeans. You know, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've never been a big fan of tofu. I do eat it, but you know that wobbly white stuff. I mean, I, I'd leave it alone. I mean, it's the same with kale. Like it's, you know, just this, these, these to me they're not even foods. But uh, mm. but you know, and, and that's the same for a lot of people. So they realise that you actually do eat chocolate. You know, you do have an ice cream. Uh, you do drink wine. But I might just tell you briefly, Kate, how how this is kind of integrated. I, I um, for many years gave talks up in the northwest of Australia and even offshore on on um, oil tankers, gas platforms, etc. And working with Argyle Diamonds, I I was invited up there to talk there there up in the near the um, Northern Territory, West Australian border, and uh, I got delivered late to my talk by the the guy looking after me, uh, and so I walked into a room which we had twenty or thirty guys in there, and on the whiteboard somebody had already written. Uh, 
uh, the two food groups and one was was beer and the other one was meat and it was, I think they were just clear trying to wipe me up. So I go, oh, guys, you know, no, no, please. We don't want you talking about beer. But actually when they said, thanks, guys. This is fantastic. You already kicked things off. How, yeah, how about we talk about the health benefits of beer? And then I'll talk, tell you about the health benefits of meat. Mm. And it was like, you know, click these guys going, hey, this is going to be interesting. Well, I think, yeah. we're going to, I think we're going to enjoy this next hour or so. And, of course, you gave your spin on that. Um, but it meant then they, would, they, they felt very comfortable talking about other aspects of alcohol, alcohol in their job, um, about the fact that they love to go fishing, you know, what kind of fish, how much fish you'll be eating, how should we cook it, what kind of oil should we use. I mean, these questions came up. These guys were actually interested in nutrition, but it was only that you allowed the door to be open that they were, felt comfortable um, engaging with that. Hmm. So what, it's about changing people's expectations or perspectives on what they think will happen when a, a dietitian does walk into the room? Well, I think, it, yeah, you're right in that it's you're, you're accepting them. You're saying, look, I accept you as a human being. I accept your way of life. Um, I'm here to maybe just try and finesse you in a different direction or get you to think differently um, and maybe make two or three choices that will – uh, you know, put to make, make it much easier for you to live a healthier life. Uh, mm. I don't expect to suddenly transform you into, you know, this this athlete coming out at the end of it all. But and that's it. I mean, that's I think that's all we can hope to do with every presentation. If you can get everybody to walk out with two units of information that they can take home and use, then that to me has been a very successful talk. Yeah, definitely. So looking back, have there been any other key experiences that have shaped your work as a professional speaker, an author, a dietitian? Well, one thing that, that happened, and it was a, in the mid-90s, about 1995, um, I had dinner with one gentleman in London and then soon after dinner with another gentleman in Sydney. And... Both of them mentioned um, that they their one regret in life was that they hadn't spent enough time at home, uh, enough time with the kids especially. And uh, to me, I thought, well, how, how about we spin this around and that I spend more spend my time with the kids while they're at home and then try and make up, as it were, make up the income when they were self-sufficient. So when the youngest, um, a year later, when the youngest went to started primary school. Um, myself and my wife, we swapped jobs. She went out and earned the money. I stayed home and uh, looked after the, the kids. And that changes things because now you still want to be uh, functional and have an opportunity to earn some money. And so my book writing started at uh, you know five o'clock in the morning. I'd write until seven or so, then get the kids up, um, get them ready, breakfast, ready for school, take them to school. And then you've got another period from about 9.15 through to about quarter three when you start taking them off to T-ball training, swimming training, et cetera, et cetera, check their homework. And then you just die at about nine o'clock at night because you're <laughs> yeah. so stuffed. Um, and, uh, and, and so then um, – you had opportunities to work on presentations, opportunities to write stuff. And it meant that um, 
when you started presenting some of this information, people then would, would approach you to do some work for them because they said, look, I understood your, your presentation, enjoyed it. Can, you give, can we give you some work to, to do on our behalf? And so it, it grew from there and it had this, this, this natural organic um, evolution, whereas as the kids needed me less and less, I was able to do more and more work. Um, so that was probably a key thing that changed it. But also when you became better at presenting, I had other opportunities. I mean, it was about a decade ago that I got an invitation to speak in five cities in India to CEOs, mm. you know, and they ring you up and say, look, you know, heard your stuff, would you like to come over and do it? And, of course, it takes you around about three, maybe four nanoseconds to say yes, and I'd love mm. to go to India and do, and do that. So it, it gave me more opportunities, um, but it was a twist, um, and that was um, becoming a, a coming home and looking after the kids, being a house husband, I think they call it. Yeah, and you've had done a lot of um, presenting internationally, haven't you? Well, different countries. yeah, I've been for, I can't remember, it's something like six or seven Maybe it's eight different countries. Uh, mm. Yeah, sometimes it depends whether people want to count New Zealand or not as a country. <laughs> so oh, no, okay. no, that's just no, that's just an eastern state. <laughs> yeah. So, do you have any tips for listeners who want to improve in their public speaking or the presenting skills, other than maybe staying at home for a few years? <laughs> well, I mean, I did start reading books about presenting, and I can tell you now that. It's, it's, there's no doubt. You cannot get this from reading a book. Um, it's usually it's it's usually like a potted formula for presenting. I mean, there may be a couple of useful tips in there, but generally not. I mean, to me, my what I think is very useful tips is is first to to love your audience, and and that is to walk into a room or and be present there and and say, look, I, I love these people. They, this is going to be great fun. I'm going to have a uh, we're going to enjoy ourselves, and also turn it into a conversation. We we often, uh, in some regards, we're forced to you know, stand behind a lecture and imagine a a, a conference. Um, I would try and avoid that if I could, and just say, look, give me a, a lapel mic. I want to I want to roam a little bit, um, work the stage. Yeah, but you know, rather than be hidden behind, I mean, a lectern smothers me. You can just see the top of my head. It's so it doesn't work for some people anyway. But also to, to make it uh, conversational, whether you're presenting, you know, imp- <clears throat> excuse me, important data at an international conference, or whether you're chatting to you know a, lo- a local netball club. I mean. Let's face it, for most dietitians, we're talking locally to a local group, probably in the region of anywhere between 10, 15, up to 80 or 100 people. I mean, that's what most of us would be doing. Some of us will be doing it free of charge and some of us are doing it as a small remuneration. Um, but to, do that, to, to have an enjoyment of doing it, uh, of presenting, present it as if you're at a, uh, at a dinner party. Uh, yeah. chatting across the table um, and and as everybody is now telling you thankfully is that incorporate plenty of stories tell them stories that help illustrate you, your point I mean that there has to be a point to your story but it helps illustrate it and it makes it also uh, the fact is that once people have heard the story that illustrates the point they'll actually believe the point yeah. um, and I've said this many times that, that you, nobody will believe a fact but if you tell a story and then tell a fact that's linked to the story, then everybody is already in that 
um, brain, I guess, um, thinking of, you know, whatever else is happening, it will be factual because the story was factual. And so, I mean, I tell stories about the history of vitamins. I tell stories about the, the history of, of um, uh, gastroenterology uh, and to show people that, for example, you know, you can eat meat and vegetables together. They don't ferment in the gut. But there needs to be a story to that if there are important points to, to make. So generally, um, over the years, I've certainly reduced the amount of data I've presented, the amount of facts I've presented, present more um, illustrations, uh, uh, certainly in the slides, more illustrations, more graphs, more stories, more examples, um, again, with the hope that at the end of it all, people walk out with two or three Use, uh, nuggets of information or units of information that they can that they can use practically, uh, usually at home or you know within their family, um, and that would be the key thing. I mean, there's lots of things you can talk about. I'll, I'll just give you one final tip on that. On that though, normally we chat, uh, say thank you very much, and then say, are there any questions? I mean, it's a standard procedure, and uh, I tell people don't do it that way. Um, if you can't allow questions during your presentation, which I think you should personally, if you can't, then what you do is near the end of your talk is you say, look, I've got, I've got five minutes left and, and I'm very, very happy to, to take any questions uh, from you. I'm sure you've got some questions you'd like to, or some points you want clarified. Please do that um, before I finish up. And then you take the three or four questions and then you go, okay, thank you very much for that. Look, I really must finish up. But the key things I really want to emphasize for tonight or for today that everybody takes home is point A, point B, and point C. And that means then hopefully that they're walking out with points A, B, and C stuck in their brain. Not, yes. not necessarily the answer to the last question that somebody asked. Do you do any mirror time beforehand? <laughs> Look, I've I've heard all that. I've seen it. Um, the ones which I may may be surprising, but the ones I spend the most time rehearsing is anything under fifteen minutes. I have to rehearse under fifteen minutes. By rehearsing, I mean I need to go through it, um, maybe using some cue cards and. Uh, so I can check the timing that I've got. Okay, now if it's a 15-minute, you know that it's going to be one minute of introductions, one minute of getting off the stage. It really needs to be somewhere between 12 to 13 minutes that your presentation time is for a 15-minute talk. Um, and so I think, okay, in that time, I want to tell you two things. Um, and I mean, at DA conference coming up, I've got a 10-minute presentation to do. They're super tricky, so you really do have to practice them. When you've got an hour, maybe an hour and a half, then you've got a little bit more flexibility within that schedule. You don't have much flexibility within 10 to 15 minutes. So, yes, there's a little bit of um, uh, practice, but the, the biggest practice is actually in the shorter presentations. Glenn, thanks so much for chatting to me today. Um, and I hope the listeners can get as much from this as I have. It's been really fantastic talking about some of the key experiences through your career, but um, also more importantly, getting a few of your top tips for improving in speaking and presenting. So just want to say thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Kate. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. 
As usual, we'll have some show notes for this episode available at dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And I'd also like to say thank you to all of our dedicated listeners for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that it was able to provide value to you. And if you did, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a review for us and also pass this podcast on to your colleagues and friends. And also don't forget to subscribe to the Dietitian Connection podcast so that you can automatically get the new episode each week. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Bye.